Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science. We have two very high-profile interviews for you this week. Andre Geim, the latest Nobel Prize winner in physics, talks about his discovery of graphene, flying frogs, the importance of humour in science, and research funding in Britain and Russia. I think the person without a sense of humor is is not a good scientist, and because without sense of humor you can't uh, work hard, and without working hard you would never win a Nobel Prize. Then we'll hear the world's most important drugs regulator, the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Margaret Hamburg, talking about the importance of science in regulation. We really live in a very exciting time in terms of of huge advances in science and technology and the development of whole new understandings about the nature of certain diseases. But we know that we're not really harnessing all of that. And Science Magazine reports on the way practicing for tests and exams improves memory and learning. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before we go on... Let me welcome my companions in the studio. I'm happy to say that both of our regulars are here, Diana Garnham, who's Chief Executive of the Science Council, and my FT colleague, Andrew Jack. Hello, Andrew and Diana. Good morning. Hello. Hi. First, our Nobel laureate, Andre Geim. He won this year's Physics Prize with his colleague at Manchester University, Konstantin Novoselov, for their discovery of graphene, ultra-thin sheets of carbon atoms with amazing physical properties. The pair, who are both from Russia, made the discovery just six years ago, which is a blink of an eye in Nobel terms. Andrew, who's incidentally a former FT Moscow correspondent, talked by phone to Professor Geim in Manchester. How did the conversation go, Andrew? Very well. We did it in, in, in English, not in Russian, certainly to reassure listeners, but um, you'll find he's a quite extraordinary, characterful figure steeped in Russian as well as European traditions. And I started off our discussion by asking him how it felt to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's a mixed feeling, OK. There is, uh, my life changed, actually, because I got quite a few prizes uh, before, but uh, there was no uh, such much uh, attention before. So it's a life-changing experience. I'm I'm a fresh Nobel Prize winner. I don't know how it works, but at the moment it's a complete nightmare uh, with so many calls and congratulations and so on. It consumes completely, so I have only a couple of hours a day to work. Which must be quite frustrating because you're you're somebody who likes to spend a lot of time thinking calmly or being at work in the lab. Well, it's one thing when when uh, when Financial Times calls, and another thing when someone calls uh, from uh, 
Mongolia or similar and ask that they want to discuss with me some uh, some new project on levitation or something like that. Okay, so, so yeah. Be- so that's a complete waste of time in the latter case. Yeah. Because, of course, as the Nobel Committee itself pointed out, you've... I think you're the only person to have won not only the Nobel, but a few years ago also the so-called Ig Nobel Prize. And they talked about the, the importance of humour in, in your, your work. How, how important is it, actually? Yeah, OK. I think the person without a sense of humour is, is not a good scientist. And because without sense of humour, you can't uh, work hard. And without working hard, you would never win a Nobel Prize. So, yeah, we, we try... F- uh, to find some funny sides of our of our uh, everyday life, which allows us to uh, paddle through the life and do sometimes boring scenes and uh, put long hours into our work. And, and your ignoble prize was about uh, levitating a, a frog using magnets. Is that right? Yeah, it was an educational experiment originally planned and so on. Okay, so it's essentially to show that magnetic fields which are around us actually produce quite a formidable force on every everyday scenes we look at. I decided to put uh, a frog inside in order, okay, just, uh, yeah, if you wish, uh, a tongue-in-cheek experiment. But it sounds as though your work around graphene also was quite, uh, quite an unusual approach. Is that right? I mean, you actually began the first attempt to as it were, I isolate graphene using scotch tape on a on a pencil tip. Is that right? It's a little bit of a legend, okay? As, as uh, usual, there is no uh, smoke without fire. Yes, we did use uh, scotch tape and so on. And, uh, yeah, it was not as a joke, but it was, again, brute force ex- experiment, okay? Trying to move very quickly, very fast, with with as little as possible hassle and uh, to see what happened uh, to do first and then think about all complications. Yes, it started with pretty uh, pretty simple things. Graphene is in every every one of your listeners has obtained graphene many times just drawing the line of the piece of paper. Of course, uh, it requires us... Uh, long hours and uh, high-tech equipment to find those graphene flakes within these pencil trays. And And what's interesting is also how rapid from your publication through to the Nobel Prize and apparently to the beginnings of potential very practical applications. Have you been involved in that process? Yeah, it's amazing progress. I think it's the graphene is is a racket holder for, for... for a material to go from academic labs into industrial lab environment and being considered now for a multitude of applications. I'm not aware about any other material who could jump from academia to industry within, say, three, five years. And, and have you been involved? Do you yourself have uh, patents on graphene in some form? I do have one patent now, which is for fluorographing, which is a two-dimensional form of Teflon. I do have this patent because it seems to be promising and it's not very far from uh, possible application. It's a very specific patent.
The other thing that was interesting about uh, your Nobel Prize was uh, the recognition also of the work of your collaborator, quite young as well. How important was that partnership with him? Costa uh, Novoselov was uh, was a leading member of a team of, uh, say, five, six scientists who uh, was uh, there from the very beginning and uh, helped a lot to make this research true. Costa was my PhD student in Holland, and the first thing, uh, and the first thing uh, was to take him over. Uh, to England when I got uh, uh, moved to uh, this chain Manchester, so he followed me without PhD uh, as a postdoc in 2001. Yeah, his PhD was in 2004 and already contained uh, as a part of its graphene research. Did you ultimately decide to leave Russia because of the funding situation there? It became quite difficult. To... I went for six months to Nottingham. I realized that within six months I could uh, make uh, more interesting work that I would be able to do within 20, 30 years, taking into account the amount of of facilities and uh, support I could possibly get in the former Soviet Union. And, and is there any concern at the moment, given obviously the British government is now talking about quite severe cutbacks in higher education? Uh, it, it it remains to be seen. Okay, so I uh, I I I wrote recently uh, to uh, Vince Cable and David Willits, inviting them uh, to the ceremony in Stockholm. And uh, uh, one of those uh, words which I used was something that this Nobel Prize is just like a glass of. Uh, a noble wine, which uh, was, is taken from a wine yard, it takes uh, a decade to grow and take care and uh, plant and water those wines. But a man with a sharp axe, it requires only one hour of work to destroy uh, all the previous work. It's uh, uh, science is a very delicate issue, and well, you can destroy very rapidly what was done for decades, and so there is no way quickly to repair the damage. Thank you, Andrew. Great interview with a great character. He sounds pretty mobile, Andre Guy. I personally would be surprised if he was at Manchester in 10 years' time, though I'd like to think he might be. What do you think, Diana? What did you make of all that? I thought it was fascinating. I mean, it really does underpin the, in the global nature of today's science. And I think trying to hang on to people in the same place for a long time is probably a, a wrong thing. We just don't want to use, lose them too, too, too quickly. I think so. I mean, if he does spend another three or four years there... Um, we'll probably have got a lot out of him, and so will the world. It'd be nice to hope that at least there would be new people coming in and they were still tempted to arrive in the UK at the same time as others might then move on elsewhere while maintaining contacts. But I like the story of, you know, he he take, brought over his postgraduate um, student from the Netherlands. You know, maybe he will take some of his favoured English postgraduate students to wherever he goes next and they in future will come back here 
you know, with ideas that they've generated from travelling with him. So um, we perhaps have to view these things rather differently. And it's interesting in terms of the culture of his approach. I think the fact that his co-author precisely was this uh, researcher he'd worked with for a long time that, as you say, he brought when he wasn't even secured for his doctoral, postdoctoral funding. It's there was a lot important. that he said was very modern in approach. You know, I liked the bit about the sense of humour. I wish I met more physicists with the sense of humour. And and I guess his lectures are very entertaining and in, and inspiring for the next generation for that reason. I bet they are. Well, it's time to move on to our second interview this week, which Andrew also carried out. It's with the FDA Commissioner, Margaret, or Peggy Hamburg, who was in London for an international meeting of drug regulators and also to give the inaugural lecture at the newly refurbished headquarters of the Academy of Medical Science. Andrew, tell us about this one. Yes, well, Peggy Hamburg was giving a lecture talking about this whole area of regulatory risk. Um, And, of course, she's arrived at a very difficult time for for the FDA, a lot of political pressure still, funding tensions always some sort of scandal whether you keep a drug or a product on the market or whether you withdraw it Uh, and I asked her first about their very recent withdrawal after a number of years of Avandia a drug for diabetes patients and what lessons she'd drawn from that experience. Well it was a very challenging situation where there was um, not as much scientific data as we would have ideally wanted to make a clear decision one way or the other. I think we came out of it in a pretty good place. But I think it did teach us some important lessons. It it really, I think, for me, reinforced the importance of continuing to strengthen the science of safety. As drugs move from the development process and get approved and go out into the marketplace where they're used by now often millions of patients you start to see safety issues emerge and we start to hear about reports of potential adverse events and how we really can study those emerging safety signals and much more swiftly and effectively develop the strategy for studying those safety signals, collecting more data, and making determinations about risk and benefit is an area that we need to work on more, we need to really deepen our appreciation of some of the ethical issues involved in studying safety signals in the marketplace. I guess the other issue is actually beyond the scientific assessment, the communication to the public and to politicians, the media and so on about risks as well as benefits. How can regulators do more in that area, do you think? I think we can improve our skills at at talking about and communicating risk. It's very confusing to the public, and especially when there's conflicting scientific data and scientific experts who are making different claims and statements about risk, some saying that there's no risk whatsoever and others saying that the data demonstrates, you know, that people on this drug are, are, are at risk of death. As we dealt with the problem of Avandia, there were very significant internal conflicts within our own agency as well as with experts outside. And we made a very conscious effort to be transparent about those conflicts, those differences of opinion, to make all the documentation behind our decision available to the public, to to talk about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that while there were many that didn't agree with our decision – 
on both sides. Some thought we went too far. Some felt we didn't go far enough. I think people could appreciate that we really tried our hardest to follow a thoughtful, systematic, science-based decision-making process, and we did the best that we could to serve the people. Now, you've just launched at the FDA a big reflection around regulatory science. So what does that imply? What, what are the things that need to change, and what could we expect to see maybe emerging from this in the months and years to come? We really live in a very exciting time in terms of, of huge advances in science and technology and the development of whole new understandings about the nature of certain diseases. But we know that we're not really harnessing all of that in terms of new products for people that really need them. So we have to to find a better way. And as I've worked at the FDA and really examined some of these issues, I'm convinced that a major area of opportunity is to really strengthen the science that underlies the regulatory process itself, to take new knowledge and capacities in the area of life sciences research and apply it to our regulatory pathways for decision-making. And unlike Europe, of course, the FDA also regulates now tobacco products and also food uh, products. Could we expect in the coming years to see a tougher line in the U.S. pushing out the message of prevention more aggressively to consumers, the warnings of eating the inappropriate foods, clamping down on additives that actually cause deterioration in their health? Well, at the end of the day, FDA is a public health agency. Our mission is clearly defined to promote and protect the health of the public, and prevention is a key tenet of public health. And we do want to see many of our programs and policies shift towards a greater emphasis on prevention. If we can stop a problem from happening in the first place, um, we save lives, we reduce disease, and we save time and money as well. You know, there are many opportunities to strengthen our focus on prevention and by doing so to promote health. Well, Andrew, Peggy Hamburg saying all the right things, openness, transparency, strengthening the science behind the regulation, improving public health. How much difference do you think she's actually making to the FDA? I think it's still pretty early days. I mean, clearly... The FDA, under her, at a time when the Democrats were both in charge on the Hill and in the White House, ought to have eased a lot of the the baiting, perhaps, that went on politically of the FDA in the past. But each time you have some sort of a drug safety concern, always the FDA is going to be attacked. And actually, it was quite striking, I thought, one of the lectures that she gave while she was in the UK, uh, as Professor John Bell, made the point the FDA has got to deal with risk and benefit, but also uncertainty and it's perhaps that third area the uncertainty which is the biggest challenge to to explain and to handle and at the same lecture mark wolpert the head of the wellcome trust challenged the whole premise that there is anything in regulatory science that there is a science of regulation he was saying she was really stressed setting up a straw man oh i i think that's actually one of the most important messages we've identified um in the science council as we apply more and more science in all areas. It's not just medicine, it's everything else as well. Everything from mobile phones, new forms of transport, air quality. We need to improve the quality of the regulatory process and the science on which it's based, and it's a very weak area. It could do with a lot of investment. It seems to me uh, one could debate the terminology, whether there's genuinely something called regulatory science, but I think the idea of applying the best of science 
within the regulatory process, there clearly could be a lot more done, both in breaking down perhaps or shifting the boundaries between pre-competitive and competitive research by the companies, and equally the, the ivory towers around academia, and clearly greater integration of those different players in innovation is vital. But almost all of the regulatory agencies find it very difficult to recruit high-quality scientists at the moment, particularly in the UK, and that isn't going to help. I agree. Anyway, let's move on now to Robert Frederick and his report from Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. There are hundreds of experiments that have demonstrated that testing is good for improving your memory. So it's somewhat surprising that we don't really know why. Mary Pick is lead author of a paper in the latest issue of Science on trying to figure out why. In particular, why testing improves the kind of paired word memorization often done when learning a foreign language. So... If a student is learning Swahili and they have the word wingo in the English translation cloud, what can they do to help them remember? Pick and her co-author Catherine Rawson first taught their study participants to use what are called mediators or keywords. And basically, all that this entails is coming up with an English word that can link to both the Swahili word and the English target. So an effective keyword might be the word wing because wing sounds like wingo, and can then be related to cloud by imagining that birds have wings and fly in clouds. After they learned to use these mediators, some of the participants would restudy the Swahili-English pairs of words, and some of the participants would do that and also test themselves. Then, a week later, everyone was tested. The result? The participants who had tested themselves were far better at recalling the correct translations than those who had just restudied. Study author Mary Pick says that the practice testing helped those participants create more effective mediators. So we know that there's two components to effective mediators, and that is first that you need to actually be able to recall the mediator when you're prompted with the foreign language word, and secondly, that once you recall it, it can get you to the English translation. And so we evaluated the extent to which testing actually leads to the formation of these more effective mediators, and we did find support for this. In particular, Pick found that those who had self-tested always scored higher in correct translations from Swahili to English than those who just restudied, even when they gave the participants the mediator words that each had come up with individually. And curiously, Pick says, prompting self-testers with their mediator words didn't really change their scores compared to self-testers who just got the Swahili word. So these people are already retrieving these mediators when they have a test trial and it's helping them get to the correct target answer, whereas people in the restudy group aren't. If people use these mediators, they would learn the vocabulary of the language much faster than they do doing the usual things. Roddy Rodiger researches memory at Washington University in St. Louis and is not affiliated with the study. And I believe that the whole idea of retrieval practice or testing is a generally efficient study strategy. You just need to adapt it to what you'll have to do. So it's more general than just language learning. It's any time you have a, you know, associative pair of information you need to learn. Such as the associative pair of, say, a person's face with his or her name. You can use mediators for that, too. But as both Rodiger and Pick point out, there may be many reasons why those who did self-testing scored better in the final test, including simply their comfort level with being tested. Again, study author Mary Pick. So there's many, many questions to be answered still. So we've kind of taken the first step in terms of looking at 
these particular encoding strategies. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thank you very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating tales from the world of science. All that's left is for me to thank my studio guests, Diana and Andrew, for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.